You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Today we're speaking with two of genre fiction's top women writers, Kate Elliott and Melanie Ron. With Jennifer Robertson, they wrote the World Fantasy Award nominee, The Golden Key. Kate Elliott is the author of the Crown of Stars series. Her new novel, Spirit Gate, is book one of Crossroads, a new series. Melanie Ron is the author of Dragon Prince series and the Dragon Star series. Her new novel is Spellbinder, a paranormal romance. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to identify yourself so our listeners know who's who. One of the things that really impressed me about both your books is how much of this world... now they are. Now, that's not so surprising with Melanie's book because it takes place in, in the current day, but it's a little, it's quite surprising with, with your book, Kate. What you really do with your book, even though as I'm immersing myself in this fabulous world, it's created and, and it's very strange compared, I mean, compared to our world, it's not like our world. Um, but one thing that just really struck me was you really create this feeling that I think we have now, and we always have, that the world is just, it's going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> well, well, I have to say that, that this book, Spirit Gate, and the, its two sequels, is actually my, my response uh, to the current situations of today. The, my, my sister says that this book is like the movie version of Lord of the Rings meets Deadwood. Um, you know, the, the moral order is breaking down, and this is how people deal with it. And, and it does come out of, it is my response to things going on today. How do people fight back? How do people struggle to create order where, where there is chaos? Um, yeah. It's a fantastic uh, effect that you create because you simultaneously submerse us in our world and in yours and give us a kind of prismatic effect well, thank you. Going back between the two. Because she's you good. You got it. You got it. Because she's good. She knows what she's doing. Well, <laughs> now, so are you, though, Melanie, though you have a, a, a different thing happening here because yours does take place in our world, but it it involves a lot of stuff that's not in most people's lives, at mm-hmm. least, with the, the supernatural. That so, probably should be. <laughs> we all actually, I think one of the reasons we like to read supernatural novels is we really wish it would happen to us. Yeah. So tell me how how you how do you use the supernatural to create this kind of prismatic effect? I really have no idea. I, it, if writers could explain how they do what they do, if we could bottle it, we would make so much more money than if we actually sat down and wrote. If you could dis, if you could tell somebody how you do it, then and, and sell that, then we'd all be gazillionaires. Um, I don't know how it happens. I know that I sit down and I do it. I know that I have been telling stories since I was about three. But you choose to use the, the supernatural to, ta- and to talk about our world in a way that makes our world more interesting. Why do well, you I think that I think that, that this world is plenty interesting as it is. Yes, the supernatural, the, the witchery stuff, that's, that's mm-hmm. a nice hook. You know, um, it's a nice way to tilt the mirror a little bit. Fantasy, the mirror has different colors. And you're not 
you're kind of not supposed to realize until the author wants you to that what you've been looking at is you and your world. With contemporary fantasy, of course, you know you're looking at your world and you know you're looking at yourself. But the magical portion, the, when, when the author uses magic, that tilts it just a little bit, doesn't color it, tilts it. Tell us a little bit about creating non-human characters and how, how both of you, if you could both talk about creating non-human characters and how you create a non-human character who seems consistently non-human, yet humans can relate to it, and it, again, illuminates the human condition by showing you something else. Kate? Um, I'll use the example from Crown of Stars. I have a, a race, a, a species there called the Ica, and they live in the north in what would be kind of Scandinavia, and you'll notice the similarity of the name Ica to Viking. And I happen to be of Scandinavian heritage, so I figured I could do whatever I wanted to my ancestors. And I was struck by the famous line from the monks of maybe Jaro or Lindisfarne or anywhere in the north who, when the Vikings would come raiding, wrote, um, they, they thought that they weren't really human you know, because they would come in and raid and kill and then leave. And so there was well, some... And they had those helmets. With the and they had those helmets. Yeah. And I thought, well, what mm -hmm. if they really weren't human? And then I had to think about, okay, let's make them not human. But then I had to not make them human. Um, and and that, that developed. It took me a couple of books to try to really track down how they were going to be really different th than us. Um, and it came, a lot of it, through life cycle and reproduction and short lifespan, and uh, the fact that when the eggs hatch, they're all, m the, the, the certain kind of eggs are all male, and they either turn into a dog or a, a, a dog or a human, although they're not really dogs and humans, depending, the ones who turn into humans are the ones who've eaten some of the other ones within the, the egg pouch. That gives them the extra strength to uh, develop more and develop higher brains. Yuck. It goes on from there. I had so much fun with them. Melanie? Duck. <laughs> Double yuck. Um, dragons. Um, I was absolutely appalled when I discovered that my nice desert princes in the first chapter of Dragon Prince um, were not, in fact, out hawking. They were out hunting dragons. I thought, oh, you moron. Anne McCaffrey has already done this, and she's done it perfectly. And you're going to have them do dragons? I don't think so. But I had no choice. The book was going to be what the book was going to be. And the book had dragons in it, and there was nothing I could do about it, which was horrifying. Um, then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to look at everything that, that Anne did, and I'm going to see if I can, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the opposite. Well, that didn't work um, because Anne, of course, did everything right. And if you do the opposite, then guess what? You're going to be doing everything wrong. So now I'm in a real pickle and I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do. And that's when you kind of surrender to it and say, I have no power over this. I am helpless in the face of what this book wants to be. And you really are. If, if you're really listening and 
and being responsive to what the the, the plot and the characters and, and the world want to do, then the concept of I am author, I am going to guide this book where I want it to go, that's hilarious. I mean, that's really funny. So you're you're one of the authors whose books basically just tell you what to do and you just take dictation? Mm, pretty much. I'd like to talk to you both about creating fantasy languages. This is a very important part of fantasy to to create names that that are you know uh, familiar enough to seem like real names of people, mm. but not so so peculiar that they you can't pronounce them and I've encountered a few that you just look at and okay well that's that's that it's text string one Melanie. of the, one of the few few ways that that I really felt I had control over Dragon Prince was that I did not want to I didn't want anybody to read this book the way I have read other people's books which is with one finger in the back of the book where the glossary is and having to go back and forth and back and forth and interrupt my reading when I would run across yet another word I could neither pronounce nor understand and had to go back to the glossary and look through and find this and say, okay, fine. Every time you have to interrupt the narrative in order to find a definition or to refind a definition because the author didn't explain it well enough to begin with, or you're, there's simply a, a name that you just can't pronounce and you have to go back to the list of characters or whatever helpful guide is in the back of the book. Every time you interrupt something, you're destroying whatever you've built up until that moment. And that's one of the, quite frankly, one of the dumbest things a writer can do. So what you do is when you when you have a name that you really care about how people pronounce it, then you work into the text somehow a guide to pronunciation. When you have a thing, um, a building that has a specific name, for example, I can't really think of anything right now, you have to work into the text a description of that building and associate that description with that word, your special word for that building, in such a way that the reader's going to remember it so that the reader doesn't have to go back to the glossary every two and a half pages to make sure that, that this is what you meant and that this is how you pronounce it. Because again, every time you interrupt, and especially in a fantasy or a science fiction novel, every time you interrupt, you're destroying whatever mood and and world um, and impression and image tower that you've been building in that reader for that for that amount of time okay um, I knew very well that uh, there were two issues I had to deal with one I did not have a linguistics background um, I happen to have a friend Catherine Kerr K-E-R-R who writes the Devery books now her books have such an impressive linguistic background that her naming conventions are absolutely true to how names change over time with you know the linguistic changes in pronunciation well I knew I didn't have that so I've done two things with um, the Geron books and Crown of Stars I just basically used historical names in the Geron books my nomads have 
Russian kind of Russian names, basically. And um, I put an author's note in the front saying that these are actually translations of their real names, which are, you know, totally alien and foreign, but they were too confusing for readers. So I'm using, well, that's kind of like hand waving. And Crown of Stars, since it's set in a kind of alternate Europe, I use European names appropriate to the area uh, that any given character is in. With the Crossroads books, I set up beforehand very specific naming conventions um, according to the culture. So I just follow those and I plug names in so that there's consistency. That's what I'm mostly mm-hmm. looking for, consistency, so y- that I don't have a culture in which I have a someone with a French name and someone with an Arabic name who are brothers in a society that's <laughs> monolithic, you know. I, we don't, you know, we don't want that. That also breaks this, the the suspension of disbelief. One of the one of the some of the most fun I had with Golden Key was I have this wonderful book at home. It's called um, a Concise Dictionary of Twenty Six Languages in Simultaneous Translation. And what it is is one thousand common, ordinary, everyday words, uh, numbers one to ten, um, book, table, husband, um, picture. This kind of thing. Um, 26 languages. That sounds nice. Helpful. Oh, it's cool. And what I did was for for the Golden Key, because we figured it was sort of French and sort of, some of it was French and a lot of it was was Spanish and, and threw in some Portuguese and some Italian and also some Arabic. And just for the heck of it, every once in a while, a little Greek. And... I went through and picked out words that that we could throw in for local color and made up this list and sent it to to Kate and to Jennifer. And we had a great time with that. You're each embarking, as we speak, I presume, on the second book in the series that you're working on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kate, it's uh, Spirit Gate. The next book is? The next book will be called Shadow Gate. You know, people like titles that show that it's a series. A series. And the next book of your series will be called We Don't Know Yet. We have not got the first clue. I'm wondering if you could talk about how you approach the second book and the subsequent books in a series, because you've set some um, ground rules for yourself, but often you might, uh, do you find yourself wanting to break those ground rules? And if so, how do you go about doing it? Kate? Well, I can tell you that I've written about 300 plus pages of Shadowgate, and just in the last few weeks I've realized I have to throw out 150 of those because they're not working right. Um, I know it's, Melanie's patting my head to show sympathy. Um, I know this book real well, and I know what has to happen in it real well because I've actually know a lot about the trilogy that takes place 65 years after this, and this is all set up for that. So I have to shape this book, the this second book, correctly to get the things across that have to happen. Um, and it's it's a challenge. And at, and at first, you can you can accept a challenge in two ways. You can go, oh no, this is too hard. Why didn't I do something easier? Or you can say, hey. This is going to be my, what, 17th or 18th novel. And the, one of the most exciting things about writing is to continually challenge yourself with something that's harder. 
that, that you haven't tried before. Well, this is something that I have never had to do before. Um, and so that's how I choose to look at it after I threw out those 150 pages and well, had to start all over again with a new opening. You, you can call it a challenge if you like. I call it a, another chapter in my continuing battle against boredom. So how are you? If I bore myself with my books and, you know, haven't helped the poor reader. How are you meeting the challenge of following up Spellbinder? Oh, there's that awful word, challenge, again. Um, I'm doing it by taking them out of New York and to a county in Virginia that does not, in fact, exist um, because I didn't want to offend anyone in any of the counties that do, in fact, exist in Virginia. Weren't you afraid of offending all of New York City? Nah. <laughs> hey, I'm a native of Los Angeles. We don't care what okay. New York thinks. <laughs> we don't like San Francisco, but we really don't care about New York. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how, how you're creating, what are you doing up in uh, upstate uh, Virginia? I'm creating a county where basically everything is run by the the witches who moved there pretty much in, in the 16 and 1700s and they kind of run everything and everybody knows it but nobody says anything about it which is becoming rather interesting now one thing that both both of your books have in common is is the world there's magic afoot in the world and and pretty much everybody knows it so tell me a little bit kate uh, how how you make that magic seem real to the characters and to the readers how do you go about in the back you know, in the back of your mind, what, what, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the gears and levers you're pulling to create the magic and make it real. I, I went through this actually, and it's interesting that you raised this question with Crown of Stars, uh, because I had a hard time knowing that it was going to be a fantasy novel with magic in it. And, you know, I thought, well, magic, you know, I didn't really believe in it. And so it was hard for me to think about how I would write it, um, in a way that made it seem real. And then I had a revelation. I don't have to believe in it. The characters have to believe in it. The world has to believe that it exists. It has to be there. What I think doesn't matter. I'm just the conduit through which this is getting onto the page. So that's what I do. To me, I have to weave it into the way the people who live in those societies think about um, Think about magic, think about ghosts, think about the supernatural, think about the way they interact with the the cosmos. Melanie. I have a, a small scene in Spellbinder where, in fact, someone who is not a witch and does not know that two of the people sitting in the living room with her are witches is talking about uh, what what the first witchcraft might have been. Was it the, uh, the person who figured out that if you throw... So, a certain kind of salt on the fire that you get colors in the flame. You know, I mean, that's magic. It isn't now because we know that certain chemicals heated will produce certain colors in the fire. But back on the savannah, back, you know, in, in the Great Rift Valley, oh yeah, that's magic. Um, what she comes up with is that the first, the first magicians were, were, were singers. Because there is such a magic in, for instance, listening to Pavarotti. I always get, get chills. And, and Kate and I, driving down here from San Francisco today to Santa Cruz, we were listening to the Beatles. And we've both been listening since we were children. I mean, it's, what, 40 years? 
How depressing is that? Um, but there are still passages of Beatles songs that give me goosebumps. It's the, the power of the voice. It's something that, that reach the, the rhythm. It's something that reaches into you and gives you a response. How magical is that? If it's never happened to you before. So, you know, one, one man's magic is another man's science, essentially, is, what, is what's going on. And you simply have to look at it, as far as I'm concerned, as something that, that just hasn't been explained yet. I think art is a form of magic yes. because we're transforming the way people look at things, or that's what we hope to do. And we are ourselves transformed, either by experiencing other people's art or in the process as we try to create art. And of course, to follow up on what Melanie was saying, when Marconi first invented the, the radio, many people thought it was a supernatural. Absolutely. Evil. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of have a theory that, that um, the written word is still thought of as magical. Anybody who can use the written word is still magical simply because during um, the Middle Ages, which a, a dear beloved professor of mine at Scripps used to describe as a thousand years without a bath. Um, thank you, Professor Blaine. Um, that the only people who could read and write were the religious the priests, the monks, those were the only people who understood what those squiggles on the parchment meant. And these were the people who had a direct hotline to God. So, of course, they, they, they had to be magical. So I think there's, there's something that sort of insinuates itself in, into attitudes that, wow, you can, like, write. That must be wonderful with the implication of that's kind of supernatural, isn't it? Well, nobody, at this point, we're only barely learning to what happens to you, your mind, when you read. The reading experience is a very interesting artistic experience because it's the only one that really d demands that the uh, percipient participate. Mm -hmm. Every other kind of artistic experience, you can just sit there and let it wash over you. And that's not the case with reading. You actually have to go out there with your mind and grab those words and process mm -hmm. them. Yes. I'd like to talk a little bit about the effect of our, our latest technological revolution on writers, which is the Internet. Um, I know that uh, Kate's a member of the Deep Genre Group. Yeah. Uh, tell us a bit, of, how did that come, come into being? Well. Tell, what is it and who's Deep in Deep Genre is a, blog, a group blog with about, I don't know, I think we've got eight or ten writers who contribute some more and some less frequently. And it came about, um, there, there are a couple of writers who have really fabulous blogs, people who can write every day or post several times a day, you know, and can be entertaining consistently. Um, then there seem to be some other people who talk about science fiction and fantasy. And a lot of them seem to me to skew to the, and I don't I to the more literary end of science fiction and fantasy, and less to kind of the central, you know, what, what I jokingly call the Lord adventure fiction aspect. And a couple of us wanted to talk about genre, just the genre that so many people read, but that seems to not be talked about as much. Um, 
and that's why we call it deep genre. It's actually a phrase I found in an essay written by Judith Berman, and I don't know where, where she talked about how she, as a, I think she has a PhD in anthropology, and is, you know, therefore very well educated, how surprised she was that when she wrote fiction, she wrote what she called deep genre. She wrote deep within the genre, using genre tropes, and that seemed to be where she wanted to come back to. That's where I stole the name from. And so we have this blog where we talk about genre and anything else we feel like as well. Tell us, Melanie, you have a, a, an official website mm-hmm. and discussion groups. How, how do the fans and the ability for fans and, and readers to interact with you over the internet, how, does that change the way you write? No. No, it changes the way I relate to my fans. We, we, writers work in a vacuum. It's you, it's, it's the computer, it used to be the typewriter, it used to be the pad and pencil. Um, it's you, your imagination, and whatever it is you're using to translate your imagination into words. And the only time we get feedback used to be if we physically left our houses and went to a convention or did a signing or something like that, or if letters that went to our publishers physically invaded our houses in the form of a manila envelope with a bunch of fan mail in it sent from our publishers. Um, because yeah. God help you if you let your address or your phone number out. You know. <laughs> yeah, hey, I, I get letters from penitentiaries. Nowadays, you, you can not only reach out through the internet to you know a site you don't have to physically leave your house but people can get in but not invade if you will your physical space and to be able to talk to people and get their reactions is um, is quite valuable but my website is divided into quite a few different topics and there are ones that I do not go to. What ones don't you go to, and the why ones, don't you go there? The ones in which they speculate on what happens in the third volume of Exiles is the one I do not go to. Um, and that's because, because you're working on I that? I don't want to know. Uh-huh. I don't want to know what they think is going to happen because I don't want... I just don't want to know because I know what happens. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I know what happens. I don't want to be influenced. I don't want to be, and I don't want to sit there and, and go, boy, are you guys wrong. Um, and it's just, it's just not something that, um, that I want to, to deal with or know about. I go to the general topics, general discussion um, one quite a bit. And um, they have a new one for just for Spellbinder. And I've been reading that, and people are, are slowly getting to the point where they're they're buying the book and, and reading it and putting putting their reactions on online. I'm wondering if the two of you, Kate, you brought up a really interesting topic to me about uh, deep genre fiction and the 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 firewall between writing that uses purely exists with all the tropes and and, and is what you call lurid adventure fiction to a certain extent. And then over here we have literary fiction by Philip Roth or something. It seems to me that 
when I read something like your book, Spirit Gate, as, as finely written as many literary novels I've seen, do you see that those walls between the two are, are breaking down? And Spellbinder as well. I mean, they're, they're both finely written novels. How do you think it is to the advantage of genre fiction to have that those walls broken down and have the two mingled? Do you think that it could be mingled? Would you want to see it mingled? I think that there's... Uh, I think the overall question is, uh, answer is no. Um, <laughs> this is a hard question uh, to tackle. Um, Melanie, do you have anything to say while I gather my thoughts? No, you're doing just fine. Oh, thank you. I was afraid you were <laughs> going to say that. That was my evil cackle. <laughs> I know. I know. Thank you, Melanie. I think there's a whole lot of people out there who do not read science fiction and fantasy and never will, and nor should they. Um, I have my uh, brother-in-law who just, he just, it needs to be real for him. And you know what? That's fine. Um, and that's good. Um, I guess what I see sometimes, um, and actually the divide I'm talking about is even, I even see it within the field. You know, well, this is literary science fiction fantasy, and that's, you know, more pulp. Um, what I see more of that I wish, which is a barrier which I wish we could get over, is people who make assumptions that they know what's in a book without reading it. They assume that it's this kind. Of, I've had this said to my face. I've had people say to my face, um, well, you write, you know. Well, let me tell a story. My, um, the first book of Crown of Stars was nominated, a finalist for the Nebula Award, which really surprised me. I have to say. So naturally, I went to the Nebula Awards because, I mean, it was fun. It, was an, it, is, an honor to, it is an honor to be nominated. Uh, this was the year that Vonda McIntyre won for The Moon and the Stars. This, do you know which book I mean? The Louis Fourteenth fantasy novel? I, I think it's The Moon and the Stars. Um, but at the end of the at the end of the convention, um, I was waiting as, wi as with so many others to leave, and uh, a person who shall remain nameless was talking to me, and this person said, he said, um, were you surprised that your novel was nominated, that was a finalist? And I said, yeah, I really was surprised. I said, first of all, it's part of a series, and that's, you know, that's less, that's less common, but in particular, it's part of a fantasy series. And I don't think people like to nominate parts of fantasy series for the nebula. That's not like a nebula kind of thing. I said, but of course, this, I was also not one of the other nominees that year was George Martin's, the first, the first or second, maybe the second volume of his series. And I said, so, and Vonda's book, which was a fantasy one. I said, so maybe this is just a year when fantasy is being recognized. And he said, well, yeah, but George Martin's book is a different kind of fantasy. And then he said, oh, and I got the free copies they sent out. I look forward to reading yours. So, so I get... still alive? <laughs> I get tired of the expectations people bring. And that's one of the reasons I started Deep Genre. So those of us who are writing can say, you know, what, what's, where it's coming from for us. Because I don't... I write from so, at so many levels, some of which are recognized and some of which aren't always recognized. And that's why it was nice for me personally to hear what you said about the, the, the modern, the prism, prism, I can't, oh, I can't talk today. Prismatic. Prismatic. Thank you. You're welcome. Effect 
within the book. Um, We're such a good team. We are such a good team, yeah. Melanie. Um, that's, that's what I mean about expectations. One of the things I find interesting is that the, the firewall between the, the critics, there's, there's a big firewall between you know, the critics of like mainstream literature and for mainstream publications and, and for genre publications. Uh, for example, the uh, New York Times just hired a, a new critic for science fiction who lists as one of his all-time t- top 10 books, the, the guide to the episode guide to the twilight zone which to me (laughs) is an unusual choice Uh, that's an unusual choice so i'm wondering if you would care to talk about the way that things are perceived from out completely outside the genre and completely inside the genre and do you think there's uh, any how much overlap is there and how much do you think that it's possible for people because i think a lot of people who like historical fiction or people who write read mysteries would really enjoy your books how do we get those people to to be willing to pick them up i think that one thing that melanie and i melanie and i have to stop doing is referring to our books as fantasy so if she would say it's a um supernatural thriller well supernatural can be ghosts a if, sexy romantic supernatural thriller yes yes and if okay. i said it's a historical fantasy um, then people would not immediately back off. I find this just happened to me in the elevator this morning. A man who had been in the workout room of the gym at the same time as I had gotten to talking about basketball, and then we were going up, and he said, you know, where are you from? And I said, oh, I live in Hawaii, and why are you here then? And I said, um, I'm an author, and I'm on a book tour. And he said, what do you write? And I said, I write science fiction and fantasy. Bam, the wall came down. And he didn't know what else to say. So I should have said, I write uh, historical novels or, mm-hmm. you know. Well, the, the problem, of course, the, to begin with is that okay, what, what Kate just said, I write science fiction and fantasy. If when someone asks what you write, you say fantasy, they automatically assume you write children's books. However... And then you have to go into a whole long explanation that nobody cares about anyway. Well, hold on. Unless you're in a cab in New Orleans and they say, what do you write? And you write fantasy. And then they go, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because if you say you write adult fantasy, they automatically assume you write porn. And then you have to go into another long explanation that nobody cares about anyway. And I think I pronounced that right as New Orleans. New Orleans, yes. Um, Point being that We've all given, uh, strict fantasy, strictly fantasy writers have all given up. What we say is, I write science fiction and fantasy. Science fiction, they have heard of. They can define it. They don't hear the fantasy aspect of it. Um, but now wait. So but, many people. Now, now fantasy outsells science fiction, so why would people be less aware of. But they don't know what fantasy is. It's either Harry Potter or it's Lord of the, I mean, thank God for the Lord of the Rings. Because for years, the only fantasy that, that the majority of the population had had any contact with was the Wizard of Oz. That was it. Which I wouldn't really. I mean, it is a fantasy, but not as I really think of it. It's, it's, it's popular culture's. Yes. Definition of fantasy. It may not be yours or mine or, or Kate's, 
but that's what the popular culture sees as fantasy because it's not real. It has it, Land of the Good Witch in it, you know. It has um, winged monkeys. Yeah, my favorites. Well, are, aren't winged monkeys real? <laughs> oh, oh, yes, they are, Rick. They are. <laughs> so, sorry, we we slipped for a minute there. Um, no, it's it's. I say that you, you know, Lord of the Rings did us a huge favor by presenting fantasy, by presenting something other than the Wizard of Oz as as fantasy. Um, the same thing with Harry Potter. I mean, I I could probably be persuaded to sacrifice regularly to the author of Harry Potter, whose name I I'm, I know I'm J.K. Rowling. Rowling, okay, I usually mispronounce it. Um, for what she has done for fantasy fiction. Not to mention Peter Jackson, whatever you think of the movies yeah. he made, it brought it even farther into the public consciousness. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, science fiction is on our TVs right now. We're living science fiction right now. I have a flip phone that looks like the communicator from the first Star Trek. Well, that's where the movie. guy got the idea. Yeah, exactly. You know, what, what was that, that program they had on, on Discovery or, or Learning Channel or whatever it was, how William Shatner changed the world? I mean, that was hilarious. But That's it was scary. A wonderful, it was a, it's wonderful a, it was a program. horror presentation. <laughs> no, it, actually, he was taking, taking the, the viewers through all of the things that Star Trek prompted people to invent. Um, I worked for a while at... Um, the California Institute of Technology in their publications department. And if you ever want to feel really, really stupid, walk across Caltech campus. I mean, those kids, I'd, the place practically glows in the dark. And we're not talking about the experiments. We're talking about the, about the IQs. Um, but you know what's, what fiction is in their bookstore? Romance and science fiction and fantasy. Nothing else. Interesting. That's what's there. At least that's what was there, you know, 15 years ago. And I could, I can't imagine that it would be any different now. Um, those kids are all, all of them, Star Trek and Star Wars and science fiction. And they want to make the worlds that, that, that science fiction and fantasy writers, well, pretty much just science fiction writers, they want to make those worlds real. But, you know, at the same time, that's still, that's still a very small percentage of the readers. Most of the readers are reading romance, which has like 40% of the readership of fiction, um, mainstream fiction, mysteries. Um, and I'm not sure uh, that a lot of those readers will ever be able to get into a, a very deep genre fantasy novel. But you never know. Robert Jordan is clearly reaching many more people. You know, whatever you think of his work, he's got a very wide audience. He's got to be dipping into people who otherwise aren't reading other fantasy novels. Mm -hmm. um, Part of the problem is that whatever genre people read, whatever they watch, they want it the same, only different. They want it different, only they want it the same. And one of the things about paranormal, to come back to that, is that paranormal is, I believe, getting out. It's pushing the boundaries of the people who are willing to read things with a fantastic element. Oh, people, Lord, I hope so. Well, <laughs> because it's set in a world they're familiar with, but it's a little different because it has a werewolf or a witch uh -huh. in it. So I think paranormal is doing the field a big favor. 
for that reason. I think it's, oh, oh, thank you so much. It is, it's bringing more people in who may then move sideways into other things. Okay, I'll 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 adopt the paranormal thing now. I except that that adds another word to the to the mix. It's now a sexy romantic paranormal supernatural thriller, and that's really too many words for the bookstore shelves. Well, that's why we call it paranormal romance. Okay, slot it. Let's talk about something that is becoming more and more prevalent: is the influence of role playing games and particularly video games on the science fiction field, and in particular on the narrative, we're seeing a lot more sophisticated narratives in these games. And I think it's bouncing back into the, the, the purely written word. Could you tell me a little bit, have either of you had any experience with either of those forms or know anybody who has? No? Melanie's saying no. Nope. She's shaking her head. Kate. I have done a little bit of role playing um, back when I was dating the man who I'm now married to. He did a lot. Um, I I have to say, again, as I said much earlier, I seem to have done a lot of this stuff on my own in my own world. So either that means I'm a total control freak or I just somehow missed it. Yeah, she's Melanie's raising her hand for the voting for the control freak. Um, My kids do some role playing. Um, I have I I do not play video games um, and I haven't dared try and see what World of Warcraft is because I'm afraid that I might actually like it and then vanish for six months and not write. Um, So I can't, the only thing I can really say is that I think the influence into movies is the emphasis on action over characterization, the idea that one event after another um, might be influencing the way people react to movies or how movies are being filmed. But the other way around, uh, and I speak from a great degree of ignorance here is I think people want narrative and and the early video games are much more events strung together without narrative but people want narrative I mean that's the human condition that's we're we're banned animals we're not loners we're not we associate with other people that's what we want and so I think the more narrative there is in video games the more appealing they'll seem Melanie do you want narrative? I do narrative. <laughs> I do narrative. I do character. I don't do windows. We've been speaking with Kate Elliott and Melanie Ron. Kate's new book is Spirit Gate. Melanie's new book is Spellbinder. Thank you for speaking with me, ladies. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you so much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.